Hi, I'm Yvonne Pran with Bible 805, where you learn to know, trust, apply, and also teach the Bible. Our lesson today is entitled, What Manner of People Ought We to Be? The Pastoral Epistles, 1st and 2nd Timothy, Titus, 1st and 2nd Peter, and Jude. Here's the date and the setting of the pastoral epistles. The Christian church has exploded in size and geographic reach. I'll talk about that a little bit more in just a minute. These books are some of the last of the New Testament and were written at least 30 years after Jesus' resurrection and Pentecost, dating them between 62-68 A.D. They're written by the leaders of the Christian faith, including Paul, Peter, and Jude, who was also a brother of Jesus and James. James, by the way, was the one who wrote the first book, probably written during right after the uh, the start of the Christian church, one of the earliest books in the New Testament. Now, the gospel had spread literally all over the entire Mediterranean world. It probably had gone all the way to Spain. It went uh, to Assyria. Uh, legend tells us that Thomas went to actually to India, Matthew all the way down to Ethiopia. It was really spread all over the world. Now, at that time, too, there were many, many churches that had already been formed. And in the New Testament alone, we have 34 named churches, uh, letters or mentions to the church in this place, to the church in Judea, to the church in Galatia, to the church wherever. So we know there were many, many churches meeting. Now, what were these churches like? We really don't know that much about them as formal structures. The emphasis for a very long time was simply on the church called the Ecclesia, which translated means the called out ones. It's not a building. It's the people. And in the Greek, ecclesia was a called out assembly or congregation, and that's what's commonly translated as church in our Bibles. But it, we tend to think of church as a building, but that isn't what they referred to. Oftentimes, for uh, when pastors want to motivate their people to serve or whatever, they'll say, you know, the church is not a building, but it's a people. It was literally true then. There were no buildings. There were no denominations. They met primarily in homes. Now, here are, I'm going to read you some quotes about the early church from different, from an article about the early church. The first one's from an early Christian writer and then from a Roman emperor who tried very unsuccessfully to destroy the Christian faith. But here's how they were described in their early days. And I'm quoting here, And what kind of lives did they lead? Justin Martyr, a noted early Christian theologian, wrote to the emperor Antonius Pius and described the believers in this way, quote, We formerly rejoiced in uncleanness of life, but now love only chastity. Before we use the magic arts, but now dedicate ourselves to the true and unbegotten God. Before we loved money and possessions more than anything, but now we share what we have, and to everyone who is in need. Before we hated one another and killed one another and would not eat with those of another race. But now, since the manifestation of Christ, we've come to a common life and pray for our enemies and try to win over those who hate us without just cause. 
Now, here's a little bit more about what the Christians were known for. Um, the article continues by saying, Christians became known as those who cared for the sick. Many were known for the healing that resulted from their prayers. Christians also started the first, what you might call, Meals on Wheels. By the year 250, they were feeding more than 1,500 of the hungry and destitute in Rome every day. When the Emperor Julian, who was also known as the Apostate, wanted to revive pagan religion in the mid-300s, he gives us the most helpful insight into how the church spread. This opponent of the faith said that Christianity, and again another quote, has been specially advanced through the loving service rendered to strangers and through their care of the burial of the dead. It's a scandal that not a single Jew who is a beggar, and that the Christians care not only for their own poor, but for ours as well, while those who belong to us, the pagan world, look in vain for the help we should render them. We are part of that heritage of being a certain kind of people. This is how Dallas Willard puts it. About 2,000 years ago, Jesus gathered his little group of friends and trainees on the Galilean hillside and then and sent them out to teach all nations, that is, to make students apprentices to him from all ethnic groups. His objective is eventually to bring all of human life on earth under the direction of his wisdom, goodness, and power as part of God's eternal plan for the universe through a revolution of the human heart or spirit, a revolution of character. This is the most important thing, the eternal creation of God's changed, redeemed people. All else will fade. Churches, buildings, denominations, governments, nations, everything. And it is those people, you, who will reach the world with God's message of salvation. Now, how do we become that? The spiritual formation of God's people is what these pastoral epistles are all about. Earlier New Testament writings clarified the theology of salvation, that we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone. In other words, Jesus' death on the cross accomplished all the work of salvation. By faith we accept it without any work or merit of our own. That is the foundation of our faith. But once we're saved, God expects us to live as his saved, redeemed people. Though previous books taught this, how we're supposed to live is the focus instead of theological issues in these books. We'll look at various passages, and we only have time for a few. Please do study more to understand and apply them fully. But first, Focus your mind. Second Peter 2 3. The chapter begins with Peter saying that he wrote his letters, and I think this applies to all the other pastoral epistles as well, to stimulate stimulate you to wholesome thinking. Or in the message it says, to hold your minds in a state of undistracted attention. I really like that. As I don't think we could we do all we could do for the Lord, not because often of any intentional decision, but more often purely out of the reality that we just got distracted. Let's take some time now to focus on living as Jesus' students and apprentices as we learn to live like him. A foundational reason that we do that, as we've talked about many times before, is because Jesus will return. And in spite of distractions or what people say questioning the reality of it, as Peter reminds us, the day of the Lord will come. 
The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. And the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. He goes on to say, since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire, and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with his promise, we're looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. So then, dear friends, since you're looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. That reality should help us focus and to make every effort as it encourages us to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace. Note what is of supreme importance. What we should make every effort for is not to be rich or successful or happy, whatever we think we want to be so that we can just be doing our thing, but we want to be spotless, blameless, and at peace. Now, what do these words mean? Spotless is a Greek apelos, which means free from censure, irreproachable, free from vice, unsullied. Blameless is aminitos, that it, it means that which cannot be censured, and again, blameless. We need to clean up what we need to in our lives, and every single one of us knows what that is. We all have things that we wish that we could do better, that maybe we wish we didn't do at all. Whatever it is, clean it up. That's what it means to be spotless and blameless. And after that, we're challenged to be at peace. At peace is Irene. Here is the outline of biblical usage from Strong's Concordance. It defines it as the tranquil state of a soul assured of its salvation through Christ, and so fearing nothing from God and content with its earthly lot, whatsoever it is. That's what, uh, and then from Thayer's Greek lexicon, it says, according to a conception distinctly particular to Christianity, the piece mentioned here is the tranquil state of a soul assured of its salvation through Christ, and so fearing nothing from God and content with its earthly lot of whatsoever sort that is. The word is also used of those who, assured of salvation, tranquilly await the return of Christ and the transformation of all things that accompany that event. This uh, challenge is really more challenging to me than even the, the other things on cleaning up your act and all that kind of stuff because it's inward. I can be working hard on the outside. I can quit doing this or that. And probably most of you listening to this here, you're not doing you know outrageous, blatant sins. But we forget that the Lord wants us to be at peace. We need to remember he has it all under control. As we work to be at peace, it can help to remember who we are. As 1 Peter 1, 1 says, and other passages also describe us as pilgrims, we're God's elect, strangers in the world, and as the passage continues, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you are not a people, but now you're the people of God. If we feel things are off in this world, then in many ways we don't fit. If you simply aren't interested in what others are interested in and you feel odd because of it, 
That's a correct assessment of our situation. As the old song says, this world is not our home. We're just passing through. Because of that, we need to learn to live with a certain detachment because this world truly is not our home and all around us will someday be replaced and renewed. We belong to Jesus as does everything we have and everyone we love. We must hold it all loosely, praying for a balance that we be good stewards of what we have while we have it. God is so gracious to give us as much as he does, and yet we need to remember, as C.S. Lewis said, the Lord refreshes us on the journey with many pleasant ends, but he will not allow us to mistake them for home. As we travel on our pilgrimage, we do have a guidebook, as another pastoral letter reminds us, where in Timothy it says, All scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. God's word is essential for all life and service that's pleasing to God. If you ever don't know what to do, the Bible will guide you, and the better you know it, the more you will know how God wants you to act. Application, finish reading through your Bible this year, and with excitement, start all over again in the next year. Try a different translation, or a different study Bible, or this year listen to the Bible, the U version, a Bible app, or just read it. Use the same plan. I do that. I use the same one year after year. I use the same Bible. I've tried all these different things, and they're all good and helpful, but I just go into it year after year doing the same thing, and it is the most beneficial, joyful thing I do. Please also listen Watch, uh, take in the lessons, the podcast that I link to from Bible805.com. And of course, if you don't have a schedule, please go to www.Bible805.com. Again, Bible805.com. I've got schedules, downloadables, all sorts of things to help and encourage you get to know your Bibles. Now let's continue with some advice on how to live. Some of the characteristics of God's people in Titus 3. It teaches us how we should relate to each other, as the Christian life was not intended to be lived in isolation, though sometimes it might seem easier if it was, but it isn't. It says, uh, to, uh, Paul is speaking to Titus, a pastor to the church there, remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and always gentle toward everyone. At one time we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. Warn a divisive person once, and then warn them a second time. After that, have nothing to do with them. You may be sure that such people are warped and sinful. They are self-condemned. Now, a few comments on that passage. Here's why it's so important to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate. It's easy once we know the truth about whatever subject to think everybody else should also. And if they don't, it's so easy to slip into honestly, what's slander? It's blasphemo in the Greek. It's to defame, to rail on, to revile, to speak evil of. When we do that, though, 
we often put ourselves in God's place, acting as if we can see the hearts and motives and judging that. If it's a real concern that what someone is doing, pray for them. If you can't talk to the person directly about it, and that's what you ought to do, remember the Bible tells us to speak the truth in love, but if you can't do that, don't talk to anyone else but God about it. Now back to the challenges to ourselves. In 2 Timothy 2, it says, You then, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Join with me in suffering like a good soldier. No one serving as a soldier gets entangled in civilian affairs, but rather tries to please his commanding officer. Similarly, anyone who competes as an athlete does not receive the victor's crown except by competing according to the rules. The hard-working farmer should be the first to receive a share of the crops. The passage goes on to talk about why it's important to suffer, which is the natural result of self-denial. Anybody on a diet or a workout plan can tell you you suffer. We don't do those things for fun. But we need to focus to play by the rules. And the result of all that hard work, as 2 Timothy 2.20 says, in large house, there are articles not only of gold and silver, but also of wooden clay, some for special purposes and some for common use. Those who cleanse themselves from the latter will be instruments for special purposes, made holy, useful to the master, and prepared to do any good work. Pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. Don't have anything to do with foolish and stupid arguments, because you know they produce quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but must be kind to everyone, able to teach, not resentful. Opponents must be gently instructed in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth. We have a choice. We can be cleansed and kind, growing ever more useful to the Lord. The Lord can't use you, though, in greater things if you fail in the little ones, in small things. So work hard to do well at whatever little task you've been given. Now here's Peter's progression of growth, his workout plan for this very reason. Make every effort to add to your faith goodness, to goodness knowledge, to knowledge self-control. That's a tough one. <laughs> to self-control, perseverance, to perseverance, godliness, to godliness, mutual affection, to mutual affection, love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But whoever does not have them is nearsighted and blind, forgetting that they've been cleansed from their past sins. Bit by bit, work on growing in your Christian life. Daily Bible reading, listening, sharing a verse with someone are all very positive ways to do that. And remember, self-control is a core essential and foundational for all other characteristics in spiritual growth because we must continually choose we must choose how to act, think, what to do. What is self-control or temperance? Um, it is, the in Greek, it's defined as the virtue of one who masters his desires and passions, especially essential appetites. We have to remember that this is conquering our desires. We wouldn't need self-control if we didn't want it, but we do need it. Here's a few other verses on self-control. Proverbs tells us that a man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. Galatians reminds us the fruit of the Spirit is love, 
joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And Second Timothy also reminds us, for God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. So how do we develop self-control as disciples? Just being at a Bible study, studying God's Word, is one of the best ways you can do it. In the book Atomic Habits, James Clear emphasizes that environment is one of the most important aspects of habit formation. We can't emphasize enough the importance of being with a group of fellow Christians, listening to Bible teaching, either in person or online. And again, please check out the Bible 805 podcast and YouTube channels. Discuss the lessons with each other. Discuss what you hear with friends. Share it with them. Read your Bible daily. Reading Christian books. Listening to Christian radio and podcasts. If for some reason, because of illness or disability or or all kinds of things, you may not be able to physically be around Christians, you can do that through the media resources we have today. All these things will help bring God's Word into our lives more and more. And this will change us. The book Atomic Habits by James Clear talks about how habits compound just as interest compounds. If you practice a positive thing, and for the Christian life, what I just mentioned are some of the things to do, you will make progress. The book states that a 1% improvement each day will make you 37 times better at whatever you're trying to do by the end of the year. I have no idea how that translates into spiritual growth, but it makes sense. And it is a great motivation for consistency in small things in our Christian lives. So what do you want your 1% improvement in the coming year to be? It doesn't need to be a big deal, a huge improvement, or a major change. Just little by little. Read a chapter or even a verse every day. Write down your thoughts about it for one minute. Spend an intentional five minutes in prayer. Be nice to one person you find difficult. Respond with kindness, not irritation. Be silent once when you want to speak. These little things matter for us, for our world, for our Lord. As, as this verse says, you're writing a gospel, a chapter each day, by the things that you do and the things that you say. People read what you write, distorted or true. What is the gospel according to you? Trust the truth also of this proverb, that the path of the righteous is like the morning sun shining ever brighter until the full light of day. As you do little things bit by bit, always intentional on how you can please the Lord when you meet him, you can be assured that you will be found spotless, blameless, and at peace. And that, in summary, is the goal of all the challenges, promises, and lessons of these pastoral letters. May that be true for all of us. That's all for now. 
please check out the notes and links to related material, including videos, podcasts, infographics, and teaching at www.bible805.com. And do sign up for the newsletter if you're not on the list so that you'll receive updates and materials as they're created and posted. And please tell your friends about these resources. These are challenging days, and Bible 805 has many resources that will help you get to know, trust, apply, and also teach the Bible. Until next time, I'm Yvonne Pran, your fellow pilgrim, writer, and teacher for Jesus. And I'd like to close with this benediction. May you know the invitation of God to move from confusion to clarity, from wandering to rest, from loneliness to knowing you are loved, from turmoil to peace, from wherever you are in your spiritual journey to a growing knowledge of God's Word and in your personal relationship with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.